This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hi folks, this is Jamar Tisby, and welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Well, sort of. See, just to catch you up, last week I had to fly solo, and so I recorded a podcast on my own, but I did a slightly different format. It was sort of a newsy, current events type of podcast where I just shared some of my views and perspectives on recent events. Well, I had fun with that, and so I'm doing it again. So don't worry, Tyler's back this week as well, so we're going to have a regular episode of Pass the Mic. But full disclosure, and I normally don't do this, I normally don't share my ideas before they're fully formed or I have something concrete, but this kind of format, this current events commentary, could become a regular segment on Pass the Mic or could even become its own podcast. Uh, What it does become or doesn't, is really entirely up to you, the listener. So thanks for tuning in, and I'd love your feedback. I'd love to know what you think of it. If it's thumbs up from a lot of people, we'll explore possibilities. If not, well, we'll just let it go, or at least I'll scale back on the format. But I do want to share a little bit of why I'm doing this. Why are we talking about current events? Why my voice? Um, Well, it's pretty simple, actually. Number one, We've got a lot of news and views from National News. So you didn't know I was a rapper. News and views from National News. No, I'm just kidding. News and views from National News outlets, and they present part of the picture. But sometimes we need more perspectives, diverse perspectives, because either those outlets simply report the news and don't give us everyday normal folks much help in interpreting the events or understanding their significance, or if they do, they are starkly conservative or, or staunchly liberal and, and usually not thinking about religion at all, specifically Christianity, in any meaningful way. So what I hope to do is, is go beyond what we can normally get in our regular diet, of national news media. But secondly, what little Christian interpretation of current events there is tends to come predominantly from what I would call a culture war perspective. Now, I say prominently because I know there are Christians of many persuasions out there writing and speaking about current events, but when it comes to the largest platforms, those tend to be dominated by theologically conservative white Protestants or just shorthand white evangelicals. And they tend, in my opinion, to take a culture war approach where anything deemed remotely left-leaning or liberal is anathema. They take a very narrow view of politics, which means they're almost uniformly Republican or or Republican-leaning. And they focus on a narrow set of issues that include, you know, abortion, Supreme Court picks, same-sex marriage, and a certain brand of religious freedom, uh, maybe one or two others. But here I am, sitting as president of The Witness, and I'm honestly very concerned about how non-Christians view us and whether we are commending the gospel to people. If they're getting a robust, holistic picture of the faith, I'm concerned that, that what most people perceive as Christianity is really just that narrow, white, conservative branch that consumes an outsized portion of national attention. And I don't want those to be the only voices commenting on current events and news. So, I'm here to provide news and views from a black Christian perspective. So 
take it or leave it, but at least you have some options. And that's what I'm doing in a nutshell. We'll see how it goes and where it goes. So as we transition, uh, we're going to tackle a few other current events this week. Andrew Johnson and a referee's power trip in a wrestling match. We're going to talk about Kwanzaa. You know it's Kwanzaa as I record this right now, right after Christmas. And we're going to talk about the question of whether Jesus was a refugee. Those are some of the hot topics that came on my radar this week, so I'll break it down for you. But before we get to that, a couple of announcements and reviews. Number one, please be praying for the Joy and Justice Conference in October, October 4th and 5th in Chicago. More details to come, but we need money. We need help with conference organizing. We need to secure speakers and all that stuff that goes into planning a conference. So we'll have more specific details, also ways that you can help as we enter into 2019. But for now, please lift us up in your prayers. Be thinking about us and perhaps ways that you can contribute. Also, follow us on all major social media outlets. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at underscore past the mic and at the witness BCC on Instagram at the witness BCC and facebook.com slash the witness BCC. That stands for black Christian collective. We also have a private past the mic Facebook group. So just search for us on Facebook if you're still on it and haven't deleted your account and you can request access and we'll get to you as soon as we can. I will warn you, we have a pretty long waiting list and, uh, Our awesome moderators are doing a great job getting folks in as fast as they can. Now, last week we had 582 reviews, and I read a few of them. Thank you so much for uh, everyone who has uh, left us a review. This week we have 587, so thank you again to the five people who perhaps listened to the podcast last week and took action and left us a review on there. Uh, This week I'll just read one because we've got so much to cover. This is uh, revealing and balanced, says Claude Ball. He says, prior to finding these brothers, I was an orphan in Christianity, wondering why the faith I had adopted from my childhood traditional black church, then my white evangelical church, was suddenly failing me in my adult years. These brothers have redeemed not just a revealing contextualization of gospel-centered content to black issues, but they've also redeemed the black church for me. Great podcast. Love that review because in many ways, our own journeys, my journey, Tyler's journey, has been a recovery and a rediscovery and a love for the black church that we often don't find in white evangelical circles, maybe not from any intention or malice. It's just absent, which uh, says communicates its own message in and of itself. So thanks for the review, Claude. If, uh, for all of our listeners, remember to subscribe, rate, and review. You can do it now. It's really simple. Take you less than five minutes, and we'd love your help. Also be looking out for a new podcast, The Aaron James Show, coming very, very soon, and we've got some more lined up for you. So let's get into this week's news. Oh, my goodness, folks. You know, some of you may be smart, and on your social media accounts, you've got it set to where videos do not automatically play. I don't have that set up. Um, I can usually catch a, a what would be a troublesome video before it gets too far. Uh, it hasn't been a huge problem for me, but but this time I wonder if maybe I should have had that filter on. And it's strange because no one got shot, no one got beat up, but it still struck me like a punch in the gut. And this is this uh, high school wrestler 
whose name is Andrew Johnson. He's, he's a black kid. He's a junior in uh, New Jersey. And he was at a wrestling match. At this wrestling match, the referee, whose name is Alan Maloney, and he's white, gave him an ultimatum, gave him uh, 90 seconds, where Andrew Johnson, the wrestler, who had dreadlocks, these dreadlocks were apparently out of code, out of policy, even though uh, Johnson had a head covering. So uh, the, the referee said that wasn't sufficient and gave Andrew Johnson, this, this high school junior, an ultimatum. He said, you can either cut the dreadlocks, cut your dreadlocks off here and now in front of this gym full of people, or you can forfeit the match. And so under this intense pressure, some of his teammates are in his face, you know, trying to, trying to hype him up and encourage him and all these things. And all these people are watching. He decides to go ahead and get his dreadlocks cut. And that's what the video shows. It shows one of his trainers with a pair of scissors cutting off his dreadlocks in front of this room full of people before a wrestling match. Now, now this, it, it's so intense, right? Like, like you can visibly see this young man in the struggles and strains of his choice and the circumstance that he's in. And if you know anything about dreadlocks, you know that they are a commitment. It takes years, literal years, to grow dreadlocks out to a reasonable length. You have to constant, constantly maintain them. I've never grown them, but I've seen uh, folks who have and, and what they go through. You've got to twist them. You've got to go and get it, uh, you know, you've got to go and get it upkept and, and whatnot. It's just a ton of work. And it's a big choice because it's a very distinctive hairstyle. It communicates a sense of identity, a commitment to a certain uh, appearance and um, an Afrocentric quality as well. So for a person whose, whose hair can do this, it, uh, it, it, it's part of their identity, their racial and cultural identity, right? So this is a huge deal it's not just hair. It's about much more than hair. And he has to get it cut off. Now, mind you, part of the issue is that this referee, Maloney, has had a very racist incident in his past. He called another referee, a black referee, the N-word at a party. And it went all the way up the ranks and he actually got suspended. That suspension was overturned on appeal but it was a very dramatic event that happened in 2016, and yet this man was still allowed to officiate. And now he's approaching this black wrestler with dreadlocks who had a head covering and who had wrestled in a previous match without a problem with those dreadlocks. He's telling him, you have to decide right here and now whether you're going to get these dreadlocks cut off to an appropriate length or forfeit the match. Well, Johnson gets the dreadlocks cut off, and he goes on to win the match in overtime. But that video, uh, which is probably less than a minute, goes viral. I mean, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of shares. I don't know how many views and sparked immense outrage. But the reason why it even came to light, the first tweet that showed it was a reporter who was at the event. And this is the caption he put on the, on, on the video. He said, epitome of a team player, talking about Andrew Johnson, the high schooler. It was either an impromptu haircut or a forfeit. Johnson chose the haircut, then won the match by sudden victory in overtime to help spark the Buena win. Buena is the high school. So um, 
folks jumped all over this reporter because they're like, no, this was not the epitome of a team player. This was a horrendous event. He should never have had to make that choice. And it's not helpful for someone to turn around and say, oh, man, way to go. Bravo. You took one for the team. Literally. (laughs) Um, I don't think that's right. Like this was not the epitome of a team player. This was more like the epitome of a team failure. Um, there's a ton of complicity going on in this video. Any of the adults could have and should have intervened. Now, according to reports, the coaches did try to protest a bit, but they failed to take more decisive action. Um, it's worthwhile to note also that the Johnson family in a statement said they didn't blame the coaches or the trainer who cut Andrew's hair, which I think is quite generous, um, of them from from what the rest of us could see in that video. But uh, it is a misinterpretation to say that Johnson agreeing to have his hair cut in front of a gym full of people was the epitome of a team player. His entire team could have forfeit. Yes, it's costly, but I would say it would be commensurate to the offense. It was a big offense and maybe worth losing that match. Um, And even some of his teammates, uh, the white teammates that I could see, we're hyping him up as if he was doing something noble for the team. But no teenager should have to shoulder that burden in a 90-second span of deciding how to represent his team, his hair, his blackness, his identity, his honor, all while dozens of people are looking on at this emerging spectacle. I think somebody should have stepped in. Um, I think the people who did protest uh, could have done so more vigorously. And I think there were probably a lot of folks that were kind of like deer in the headlights. They didn't know what to do or what was going on. They, they, they didn't even know how to process it in that moment. Now, I've been there. I really have. Uh, but at the same time, we ought to be cognizant enough, especially of racial issues in America, to be able to react in those situations, right? It takes training. It takes intentionality. That's why we talk about this stuff so much. Like when a spontaneous event comes up, how are you going to react? If you haven't been training yourself to have a filter for race and power and all of those things, then when an incident like this occurs, you're going to be like a lot of those spectators who who really probably had no clue what to do or how they should think about it. I don't want that to be us. So I want us to think through these things. And I think that there was a lot of complicity going on. I think a lot of that complicity was perhaps due to ignorance. They just didn't even know the significance of dreadlocks or what this young man must have been going through. I will say that his black teammates looked like they knew. Now, they didn't say anything, but it was written all over their faces. Uh, They appear sullen and upset because they knew it was about more than following the rules. It was about the referee asserting his power. Now, I don't know if the ref was conscious of what he was doing or not, but that doesn't matter much. We spend a lot of time talking about the intentions of people. And I think that's there. It doesn't not matter, but it probably doesn't matter as much as we typically give it credit for. I mean, let's think about this, right? Uh, This young man was humiliated, and now this very painful incident has become public. And folks like me record podcasts talking about it. How, do, how much does it really matter what the ref was thinking at the time? How much does it really matter what his intentions were? Because we know the actions and the results. We also need to note that in 2016, the same referee had a similar incident involving race. Well, a different incident, but still an incident involving 
racial insensitivity. We can call it outright racism. Call someone the N-word. I don't know how much more racist you can get. I mean, that's pretty blatant and apparent. Uh, so he's got a history, in other words. And um, I think the last point that we got to think about on this is this concerns us all. So it's not just about a wrestling match in New Jersey. The question is, how do you even get to this point where, you know, you have these rules that are sort of selectively enforced, and in this case, have extreme racial over and undertones? Um, So I think it's incumbent upon all of us, if if we're adults, especially if we're adults who uh, work with kids or are affiliated with any institution or ministry that serves kids, that we peruse our schools or our institutions' handbook for any policies that pathologize black bodies. Now, this shows up in a lot of ways, particularly around hair, and it'll be policies that say no braids, no beads, no dreads, no quote-unquote unnatural hair. And, and, and some of these things seem strictly to apply to people of African descent or people of other racial and ethnic backgrounds. You need to check Is that happening at your school? Is that happening at your church ministry or your staff or your youth group or whatever it might be? Uh, If so, that is at least worth a conversation. If people are hard-headed or or don't want to hear you, you maybe need to show them this video and the response that has occurred and say, do do you want this to happen to to us? And more importantly, do you want this to happen to any of the young people we serve? Uh, And I'm speaking from experience. I worked in a college prep middle school for years, and we had an embarrassing policy. And I didn't at the time recognize it as such. It was an attempt to enforce respectability around uh, the appearance of our students. And we virtually mandated that all the boys had to have short cropped hair, no lines, no braids, no mohawks, no dreads, etc. And girls, similarly, they had specific rules about their appearance. Now, granted, our school was almost entirely composed of black students, But we caused ourselves and our families and our students so much grief over something that really didn't matter all that much in the long run, like what their hair looked like as a sixth grader. Um, And we did it because we were trying to fit this image of of what a college student or a college prep student looked like. And the style that fit is uh, somehow, you know, that that natural black hair and, and style that was somehow not scholarly or professional. Now, I'm glad to say that we eventually changed that policy. And when I became principal at a different school and wrote the handbook, we had no such rules. Uh, But that actually brings me to my own hair journey. That's right, a hair journey. And you can talk to a lot of black people, especially black women, and they can tell you about their hair journey. Now, uh, for years, I kept my hair bald or very short. In high school, I started shaving my head because I worked for the Youth Conservation Corps and I spent all day outside in the summer doing trail maintenance at Forest Preserve. So it was hot, um, bald head was easy to wipe and the sweat off and and it was just very utilitarian. And I kept that as a style because this is also the 1990s. Michael Jordan is still the man and still the goat, in my opinion. Watch out, don't at me. And then the bald look, it's, it's both popular and timeless. So it was sort of in style at that point. After I got out of college, I kept my hair short too, and I'm not sure I put all that much thought into it, but I, I had my first professional job as a teacher. The guys had to wear ties every day, so I'm sure the short hair, you know, no lines, no coloring, all that, that was part of the quote-unquote professional look. 
And I'm also positive that the ease of styling was a big part of it. I cut my own hair and I didn't want to go to the barber and spend hours and hours on a weekend where time was so precious. So it was just easy to maintain. But fast forward a few years and now my hair is the longest it's ever been. It's natural with minimal styling. I just use some product to keep it moisturized and a sponge to to define it somewhat. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to look it up. Um, and But do you know how that happened? Uh, why I decided to grow my hair long? My fifth and sixth grade boys taught me. Yeah, it was the 2015-2016 school year. I was principal of a school in Jackson, Mississippi, and every day I would shake the hands of the kids as they walked in the door in the morning. And I remember thinking every day that as I shook the hands of my boys, how sharp they looked. And, 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 and they, they were just keeping up with the latest hairstyles, right? But, but they had their hair natural and long, and they had braids sometimes and, and, and the sponges. But it all looked, like I said, sharp and, and purposeful and well-maintained and stylish. And they were just handsome. And furthermore, even as 11 or 12-year-olds, you know, it, it, it struck, stuck out to me that, that many of them seemed to have this confidence about them, this, this air that I admired. And so I started asking myself, Jamar, why do you wear your hair like this, so short? Why haven't you ever tried to grow it out? And the first thought that came to my mind were the quarterly meetings of the presbytery. Now, in Presbyterian circles, a presbytery is the regional governing body. It's made up of teaching and ruling elders, and they're in charge of ordaining and disciplining and setting policy for the region. And in my particular presbytery, they were very conservative. I was often also only the only one or maybe one of two or three black people who was at this quarterly meeting. And so I was hyper aware of my minority position, my appearance, how people perceived me. And I had to be honest with myself that a big part of keeping my hair short was to impress these men. And they were all men, uh, many of them older white men who had never been under any meaningful authority from a person of color or a lot of them even in any real meaningful relationships with black people. So I said to myself, as I was you know, shaking these boys' hands and, and watching them every day, I said to myself, forget this. If folks are going to think less of me because I wear my hair longer and in its natural state, then that's an issue with them and not with me. So that's it. That's why I started to grow my hair out. Fifth and sixth grade students gave me the confidence to lean into my blackness and to signify it by wearing my hair natural and grown out. As for Andrew Johnson, I hope this young man gets therapy. I hope the ref has to pay for it or the school district or somebody else. Uh, The ref has been fired as of this recording and will no longer officiate these events. But I hope he also gets counseling and participates in something like anti-racism training and maybe helps teach other people at some point who might hold similarly backwards views, backwards views. Um, I got, I go into this more in an upcoming article on the religion news service. Just watch my social media feeds for a link and we'll try to remember to post it in the show notes when it comes out. But there may be in this whole incident, an opportunity for restorative justice. So Andrew Johnson, man, you're a lion. Keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate you and support you, bro. You got a whole community behind you. Habari Ghani. That means, how are you in Swahili? And it's the daily greeting during the celebration of Kwanzaa. So happy Kwanzaa, folks. Kwanzaa takes place every year from December 26th through January 1st, right after Christmas. The creator is Dr. Maulana Karenga. 
He's the professor and chair of Africana Studies at Cal State in Long Beach. And Kwanzaa celebrates the African diaspora and the pan-African heritage of all black people. Dr. Karenga says, at the very heart and center of the celebration of Kwanzaa is the ethical imperative and social obligation of the cooperative creation and sharing of an inclusive good, capital G. This principle and related practice are rooted in its ancient origins in the African harvest and the communitarian worldview and way of life that undergirded and informed it. That's from Dr. Karenga's 2018 Founders Message. Kwanzaa comes from a phrase, Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, which means first fruits in Swahili. And so Kwanzaa is a celebration of first fruits. And it was founded by Dr. Karenga in 1966, which, if you know your history, that's in the midst of the phase of the black freedom struggle known as the Black Power Movement. Part of the Black Power Movement was Black Consciousness, which is an intentional recovery of African heritages and cultures. And and Black Consciousness is a direct refutation of the whitewashing of history that erased or minimized the history of non-white people, especially African-descended ones. Listen, folks, it wasn't that long ago that most of your history books barely mentioned Africa or black history in America. A lot of our textbooks today still don't mention it, or at least do so very, very briefly and not in near proportion to its importance in terms of the grand sweep of history of the United States. So uh, Kwanzaa was designed to say, hey, this stuff is important, and our African heritage, not just our American heritage, but our African heritage, is vital too. Again, here are the words of Dr. Karenga. Kwanzaa is and was conceived and created in resistance to Eurocentric cultural domination and determination of ways for us to understand, assert, and celebrate ourselves and engage the world. And it was conceived and created in reaffirmation of our Africanness as persons and people and our right and responsibility to be ourselves, free ourselves, and celebrate ourselves. So, the Afrocentric nature of Kwanzaa, that's on purpose. And it's not only a celebration of beautiful cultures, but a direct correction to the denigration of African history, accomplishments, and contributions. So Kwanzaa is based on seven principles. It, it lasts for a week. You celebrate once one principle a day. Uh, the seven principles in Gozu Saba is what they're called. And the first one is Umoja, umoja which means unity. The next one is Kuji Chagulia, which means self-determination. Ujima, collective work and responsibility. Ujama, cooperative economics. Nia, purpose. Kuumba, creativity. And Imani, faith. Now, uh, there are lots of symbols and rituals that go along with Kwanzaa. Um, You're supposed to have seven candles, uh, black, green, and red, that represents the colors of the Pan-African flag, which I believe was um, popularized by Marcus Garvey in the the first quarter, first third of the 20th century. And then um, you, you celebrate one of those principles each day. Other symbols of Kwanzaa include a mat on which some items are placed. There's zawadi which is Swahili for gifts. There's different kinds of crops representing uh, first fruits. There's a unity cup 
um, and, and all kinds of different things. And, and usually there's libations that go along with it, some, some sort of lesson on African culture or history, honoring the ancestors, that kind of thing. It's, it's a communal event. It brings together families. It brings together uh, neighborhoods and, and uh, civic groups. And, and that's a huge part of Kwanzaa is the communal aspect, that it's, it's everyone together pursuing these principles. And it's a cultural holiday, not a religious one. And so people of any faith can and do practice Kwanzaa. Um, now, there's some controversy there because apparently originally Karenga wanted Kwanzaa to be an alternative to, Christ- to Christmas. And he, like many other people of color, uh, came to the conclusion that Christianity was the white man's religion. Now, you're going to be familiar with this if you've listened to podcasts for any amount of time or pass the mic for any amount of time. We talk about this often, how a lot of folks, because of the way Christianity or what's been called Christianity has been practiced in America, was the slaveholder religion, as Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove writes in his book. Um, it was the religion that bolstered race-based chattel slavery. It was uh, the religion of oppressors and empire. It was a religion of segregationists, and they used the Bible, they used their religion to reinforce white supremacy and black racial inferiority. And so it's understandable that a lot of people would look at Christianity and say, nah, that's not for black people. That's not for people of African descent. That's not for any person of color because it's been used to justify oppression so often. Well, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but let me just remind us, number one, Christianity did not originate in the United States, nor did it originate in Europe. It originated in what is now called the Middle East among brown-skinned people. Jesus was a brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jew. Uh, it was in, uh, Christianity was in Africa long before it was in Europe or North America. I, I got to spend a semester in uh, what we call the Holy Land, and we got to see Ethiopian Coptics who have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And it's a beautiful tradition that they have. And it is not the white man's religion. So we need to do a little bit better history if that's what we think. So apparently Dr. Karenga was one of those folks who thought it was, uh, who thought Christianity was the white man's religion. Kwanzaa was designed to supplant Christmas if black people weren't, didn't want to celebrate sort of a, a colonial or imperialistic religion. But he later changed his mind. This is very important. And he made it explicit. Uh, that Kwanzaa was not meant to replace any religion's holiday, and he wanted to make sure that even Christians could celebrate Kwanzaa. So I just wanted to give you some background on Kwanzaa. It's happening right now. And for further information, read Kwanzaa, a celebration of family, community, and culture by Dr. Karenga himself. Or there's also a documentary called Black Candle. I believe that was narrated by Maya Maya Angelou. So Black Candle and Kwanzaa, a celebration of family, community, culture. Habari Ghani and joyous Kwanzaa to you. On to our last topic of the day. A very simple question, but a very loaded one. Was Jesus a refugee? Now, this debate comes up pretty often, but it was really supercharged recently. Um, I think it was on Christmas Day, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who I believe is Catholic, she tweeted this. She said, Joy to the world. Merry Christmas, everyone. Here's to a holiday filled with happiness, family, and love for all people. And then in parenthesis, she says, including refugee babies in mangers plus their parents. Whew. Now, 
If you read between the lines, you know exactly what she's doing. So Ocasio-Cortez is a progressive, um, and she is making a political point among her holiday message. As she's talking about refugee babies in mangers that, and their parents, that's, of course, an allusion to Jesus and his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. Now, where did she get this from? Well, let's go to the Bible. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, 17 say, Now when they, meaning the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, meaning Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men and so on and so forth. But the idea behind this is that uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph had to flee from Herod's jurisdiction and go to Egypt in order to escape uh, this, this edict by Herod to kill all male children in Bethlehem who were, and the surrounding region who were two years old or under. So the idea is that um, the family of Jesus had to flee persecution. And so in that sense, they were refugees. Now, we also have to pay attention to the current political context of, you know, 2018 and the 21st century and this presidential administration. Ocasio-Cortez's statement comes in the midst of a tense dispute over border and immigration policies. President Trump authorized a policy of family separation at the border between the U.S. and Mexico that separated children from their parents. He also, uh, two of those children have now died, both from Guatemala, I believe. One was seven, one was eight. Um, And as I speak, the government is in the midst of a partial shutdown because Trump has failed to secure funding for a wall that he has promised since the presidential campaign, a wall uh, shutting off the U.S.-Mexico border. Many point out that Jesus himself would not have been allowed into the U.S. under the current policies that seem specifically targeted to black and brown immigrants including refugees. Um, Now, agreement on this idea of whether Jesus was a refugee or opposition came fast and hard and fierce and largely along partisan lines where Democrats uh, saw the continuities between Jesus's situation and that of modern refugees, whereas Republicans contended that Ocasio-Cortez and many others, including the Pope, who in 2014 said that Jesus and his family were refugees, that they had taken the Bible out of context. Now, I want to say there is a danger in one-to-one comparisons between uh, what the Bible states and what's happening in the 21st century. So I was reading a a thread on Twitter or Facebook, and and someone put it well. They said, you know, we we should be wary. We should be wary of superimposing a United Nations definition of refugee on the Bible and and vice versa. Uh, But uh, I do think it's probably a misunderstanding at work, right? So a lot of people who object to saying that Jesus was a refugee 
are doing so on the grounds that uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph remained within the Roman Empire. In other words, they didn't actually flee the country or go to a different regime. They remained within the Roman Empire. So how can you be a refugee within your own country? Well, I don't think you have to be uh, to, I don't think you have to flee your country entirely to be considered a refugee. You just have to be someone in search of refuge. And you have to move from a place of danger to a place of relative safety. And so typically that's out from under the corrupt and abuse of uh, the ruler of one state or a particular leader or a territory and into another that's perceived as safer. But that may not always be an entirely different country. Here's the best example I can think of. The Great Migration. Now, if you know your history, the Great Migration was this massive movement of millions of black people out of the South into other regions, mostly the industrial North, but also to the West and the Northeast. Um, now, this happened in you know the uh, early to mid-20th century, and it happened in the midst of Jim Crow, I think the great migration of black people from the South to the North could in many ways be considered a mass movement of refugees. Why do I say that? Well, number one, why were black people leaving? For economic opportunities, sure. But they were also fleeing the regime of Jim Crow in the South, which was reinforced by violent acts, including rape and nearly 5,000 documented lynchings. And they didn't leave the country. Black people weren't leaving the country, but they left a region and they left states where the white supremacist stranglehold was nearly complete. Now, I spend much of my time in Mississippi. I can attest to the fact that that stranglehold is real and it is almost impossible to shake when you don't have any money, you don't have any political power, and a lot of people outside the region don't know exactly what's going on. It's, it's, it's a nearly complete system of suppression. And these black people, they journeyed to states and cities in the north like Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland and other places in search of jobs and, and freedom from the racial oppression of the south. Now, <laughs> what they found was an intentionally enforced ghetto that segregated them residentially. And while they did find some jobs, they were often scarce and black people were frequently barred from middle and upper level management jobs. So that was an issue. There's racism and segregation everywhere. But nevertheless... Millions of black people, four millions of black people, anywhere was better than the South. And they fled the South in order to escape oppression and racial terrorism. And they went to other places, like other states, where there were different rules and different laws. And I think they could be considered refugees. And that doesn't that, doesn't that flip the script a lot? Like, if we think about the Great Migration as a refugee movement, then maybe it puts into perspective a little more clearly the dire circumstances that black people have faced in this country, where the majority of black people for generations, and I think perhaps even now, have lived in the South, in the Southeast, in the states of the Deep South or the Bible Belt, as, as some call it. And in those regions, their history has been one of slavery first, then uh, convict leasing for those caught up in the criminal justice system, quote-unquote, uh, sharecropping, which, which is a very recent history, and now almost the complete evacuation 
of any sort of professional jobs or jobs with a career path that could leave, lead to, um, you know, sustainable middle-class living across generations. So that's the legacy. And it was reinforced by violence and acts of racial terrorism. And that, those are the conditions that led black people to move out of the South in droves. Now, some of that's reverting. Some folks are moving back, but it's taken decades, decades to, to sort of change that tide. And so I think folks looking for refuge and, and, and moving out from under the jurisdiction of one person or one state or one set of rules to another, I think you've got a strong case that they were refugees. And so were Jesus, Mary, and Joseph refugees? I think more so than, more yes than no. <laughs> Should the U.S. derive its immigration policies in the 21st century from the Bible? Well, not necessarily, but if we're speaking specifically of Christians, then neither can we ignore the Bible's clear instruction to welcome the stranger, to care for those who are harassed and struggling and looking for safety and basic sustenance. We've got to find a way to honor these image bearers who are in the midst of horrendous situations and are looking to the United States as a beacon of hope. Now, maybe we can't be that for everyone in every circumstance, but we can certainly be that for a lot of people and do our best as believers who are also citizens of this nation to demonstrate Christ's love for the foreigner. So that's it for this week, folks. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and this format overall. You can send us an email at admin at thewitnessbcc.com or just tag us on social media at underscore pass the mic and give the quick thumbs up or thumbs down or something else about what you think. And uh, we'll see you soon on the next um, whatever this is. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.